the Bible. Amazing book filled with amazing stories. Not all of them are easy to understand, and some can strike the reader as strange. But they all intertwine as part of God's bigger story. Chara Donahue is the gal who penned the article that caught my eye. She wrote about ten stories in the Bible that never get airtime in the pulpits of our churches because they're so unusual. We're calling the series Ten Unpreached Sermons. I'm using the titles that she provided, and I'm preaching them in the order that she listed them. Today is part four. It's found in the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 21. In part three, not last week because Samuel preached, but the week before that, we saw Saul as the declining king of Israel. God had departed from him as a result of Saul's rebellion. And when the Philistines lined up in battle array against the Israelites, and Saul really needed to hear from God, God was distant. So in his rebellion, he turned to a sorceress, a witch, to determine his next step. And this would seal his fate. Today's story takes place just a few short years after the fall of King Saul and during the early reign of his successor, King David. It's part four of the ten unpreached sermons, Rizpah, the devoted mother. Verse 1 of chapter 21 of the book of 2 Samuel says, There was a famine in the days of David three years, year after year. Now, the King James is, is brilliantly written. Now, we get, we get a little extra information here. It's a famine that lasted three years, three consecutive years. And David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, It's for Saul and for his bloody house, because he slew the Gibeonites. And the king called the Gibeonites. David called the Gibeonites and said unto them, verse 3, What shall I do for you? How can I make atonement? How can I make it right? Verse 4, the Gibeonites said unto him, We don't want any money from the house of Saul. Verse 5, and the king answered, and they answered the king. Verse 5, the Gibeonites answered David, and they said, The man that consumed us and that devised against us that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the coasts of Israel, let seven men of his sons be delivered unto us, and we will hang them. And the king, David, said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath that was between them. Verse 8, But the king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bare to Saul, Armani, and a different Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Michael, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Mahalathite. And he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites. They hanged them on the hill before the Lord, and they fell, all seven together, were put to death in the days of the harvest, in the first days, in the beginning of the barley harvest. Verse 10, And Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself upon the rock from the beginning of harvest 
until water dropped upon them out of heaven and suffered neither the birds of the air to rest on them by day nor the beasts of the field by night. Moms are unsung heroes. They're the ones who stay up all night with sick kids, comfort hurt knees, and soothe broken hearts. When I was in the fourth grade, my mom, who, who didn't even like driving in Duluth, who wouldn't drive in Duluth, took me by herself all the way to the University of Hospital, the University Hospital in Madison, and stayed with me the entire time that I needed to be there. There is no one like mom. I've said it often. I believe that the the closest thing to the love of God that we have on planet Earth is the love of a mother. It's virtually unconditional. The kid may be deranged, disturbed, dishonest, and detached, but mom will never lose hope. She will never give up, and she will always be there. We see that lived out in the life of a, a heartbroken mom in today's story, Rizpah the devoted mother. For five long months, Rizpah stands watch over the unprotected bodies of her two boys. From the time of the barley harvest in mid-April all the way to the autumn rains, Rizpah refuses to let the birds disturb the bodies by day and she fends off the beasts of the field by night. It was tireless, relentless work. Her heart was broken, but in her mind, Her task was unfinished. Rizpah's name is mentioned only four times in the Bible, and all in this one passage. Ironic to me, anyway, that such a a heroine would go so unnoticed, and her story would be among the unpreached sermons. But that's the story of mom, right? Mom does all the -the behind-the-scenes work, starting with conception, Dad gets the fun part. Mom carries the baby. And while life goes on for Dad, Mom suffers from morning sickness. She battles constant fatigue and watches in horror as her body contorts and stretches, expands, and transforms from a wonder of delicate beauty into a functional, purposeful machine designed to produce children. (laughs) Then while dad watches TV and snacks in the birthing room, she travails in the pain of childbirth, a remarkable, excruciatingly painful process that makes every man in the world wonder why any woman would do this more than once. The only explanation being, it's worth it. Ask any mom, she'll tell you, yes, the pain is an 11 on a 1 to 10 scale. (laughs) But she will also tell you, it's worth it a hundred times over. There's no one like mom. So it's also ironic to me that Eve, the mother of all living, which is what her name means, also gets a whopping 
four mentions in the Bible. Adam doesn't do anything, but stand there while Eve eats the forbidden fruit. He gets 31 mentions. Eve gets four. Rizpah, four. In all seriousness, I tip my hat to moms. I tip my hat to stay-at-home moms who are sometimes made to feel second-rate. Not to me. I salute you. And working moms as well. It's sad that so many have to work. Maybe some want to stay home but can't. And others are meant to invest in a career and, and still have to somehow balance all of that with raising children. Wow, I, I, I commend moms. I, I think you're amazing. I think Rizpah was amazing. Rizpah was one of King Saul's concubines. A concubine was a female slave who functioned as, as sort of a secondary wife. They were primarily kept around to produce children. A royal concubine would be of good stock, as they say. She would possess exceptional beauty and intelligence and be desired by the king. A wife would have a much higher social status than a concubine. Rizpah had two sons by the king, Saul, in her role as concubine, Armani and Mephibosheth. The backstory for part four involves Joshua chapter nine, where the Israelites are deceived by the Gibeonites. Great story, I, I won't take the time to go into that, but they, they, they were deceived into making a pact or a league, as the King James calls it, to, to not destroy the men of Gibeah. Israel upheld the agreement until sometime during the reign of King Saul. Whatever happened is unrecorded in Scripture, but the implications are clear. Saul breached the contract, and God always takes that seriously. All we know is atonement was needed. Verse 1 says, For Saul and for his bloody house, because he slew the Gibeonites. And so David sets out, to make it right. Verse 3, David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you and wherewith? How can I make atonement? David probably didn't realize what this would entail. It was probably thought a, a stiff fine, maybe some probation, a little community service. But the Gibeonites wanted to extract their pound of flesh from the house of Saul. Verse 6 says, Let seven men of his descendants be delivered unto us, and we will hang them. Seven descendants of King Saul, the perpetrator of the evil deed, are demanded. Five grandsons, and the two sons of Saul and Rizpah would be the price of atonement. And the king, David, said, I will give them. So the seven descendants of King Saul were slain and displayed on a hill in unceremonious fashion. Rizpah, it appears, witnessed the deaths. But when all the other people left the scene at the end of the day, she did not. Her son's bodies continued to hang in the open even as night fell. And thus began the terrible vigil. One can only imagine the anguish of a mother 
who had lost literally everything in the most horrifying way imaginable. A voice is heard in Rama, Jeremiah 31 says, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are not. Rizpah stayed at the scene of the execution, guarding their bodies night and day, good weather and bad, for five months. She took a piece of sackcloth and spread it out over a rock, and from the beginning of the barley harvest in mid-April through the autumn rains of October, she stood watch over her precious boys. Verse 10 says, She suffered neither the birds of the air to rest on them by day, nor the beasts of the field by night. She was there in the heat of the desert day. She was there in the bone-numbing chill of the night. She did not cease until David, hearing of her plight, came and provided for the bodies to be buried. Verse 11 of 2 Samuel 21 says, It was told David what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done. And David went and took the the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, which had stolen them from the streets of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them when the Philistines had slain Saul in Gilboa. That's a separate incident. Verse 13, And he brought them up thence, the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, and they also gathered the bones of them that were hanged, which is our incident. Five months. Five long months. It speaks of a mother's protective love for her children. That love I described as the closest thing to the unconditional love of God. And it makes me wonder what happened that brought us to a place in our great land where somehow we would begin to see abortion as plausible. How did we get to the place where we could choose to terminate a pregnancy? Rizpah would have given anything for the life of her children. Somehow we got to 1973 and we began to see life a lot differently than she did. We began to see life as disposable at our own discretion. Does the simple fact that we've yet to see or hold the baby make it acceptable to kill him and then do our best to forget that she ever existed? The Bible teaches that life begins at conception. Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee, God says to Jeremiah the prophet. And before you came forth out of the womb, I sanctified you and I ordained you a prophet unto the nation. The psalmist writes, you were there while I was being formed in utter seclusion. You saw me before I was born and you scheduled each day in my life before I began to breathe. Prior to the 1973 Supreme Court decision that allowed abortion on demand, Developing embryos, get this, were considered unborn persons. 
Now, even a fetus that could survive on its own outside of a mother's womb can be aborted under certain circumstances. But just because the government says it's legal doesn't make it morally right. We're learning that principle on a number of fronts these days. From marriage to gambling to drugs and a a host of gender issues. In fact, just this week in the news, Minnesotans applying for a driver's license have a third gender option. M for male, F for female, or X. Way to go, Minnesota. Can we do that one more time just for fun? Way to go, Minnesota. Special effects. You've got to make the most of them. <laughs> so, so it's like the little boy who, who brought the bunny to class for show and tell. And one of the students asked, is it a boy bunny or a girl bunny? And the little boy said, I don't know. And one of the other students raised their hand and said, let's vote on it. And that's exactly where we find society today. We're voting on immutable and unchangeable truths. Truths that don't change have become a matter of public opinion or majority. The founding fathers of our great nation desperately wanted limited government. But limited government is predicated on a religious people. The more secular we become as a nation, the more we need government to tell us what's right or wrong. As a religious and moral society, now hear me, as a religious and moral society, we had no trouble defining life, marriage, and gender. Take God out of the picture, and we have no idea what we have. We've degenerated into chaos. The less of God we have, the more we need a government to provide our moral compass. And good luck with that. It was Ronald Reagan who said, put the government in charge of the Sahara Desert, and in five years there will be a shortage of sand. (laughs) By the same token, put government in charge of morality... And eventually they bow to the loudest voice and the biggest donor. In the United States, nearly half of pregnancies are unintended. And four in ten of those, four of those unintended pregnancies, four of ten of those unintended pregnancies are terminated by abortion. There are over 3,000 abortions per day in the United States. 22% of all pregnancies in the United States of America end in abortion. God help us all. Worldwide, there are 125,000 abortions a day. Those numbers are staggering considering one is too many. The idea of life at conception It's common sense. A man and a woman both bring a life-giving element to the table. 
And when these two elements are joined, life begins. The only thing required for maturation of that tiny life is time and nourishment. Which, by the way, are the same things an infant requires. A baby cannot sustain itself either, and yet no one would say that a baby in the nursery isn't a human life. It simply needs time and nourishment. Part of the perceived need of a modern convenience like abortion is due to the sexual revolution of the 50s and 60s. Our newfound flippant attitude towards sex changed how we feel about the often unintended result of a sexual relationship. So we follow up one carnal decision with another. Within the bonds of marriage, sex is a beautiful thing. It's pleasurable. It creates an unsurpassed intimacy with your spouse. And most of all, it contains within it the potential of life. It's significant and meaningful because the sexual aspect of a relationship creates a soul tie. It unleashes the potential of life itself. Nothing else can. The sexual relationship can create a soul. Outside of marriage, you get a moment of pleasure, a lot of guilt, a lot of remorse, some unintended and inconvenient results. Sex has been cheapened and casualized, and what was meant to be really, really special has become all too commonplace. What was meant to be reserved for the protective confines and the exclusivity of marriage is now practiced between strangers in a drunken stupor who meet in a bar. Society has drifted a long way from God's original plan, which was never designed to deprive you, only to protect you emotionally, physically, and spiritually. Matthew 19.5 says, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and the two shall be made one flesh. In the very first book of the Bible, we find marriages between a man and a woman. The Bible makes it eminently clear that marriage is exclusive and, and sex is to be between a husband and a wife. Anything else, everything else, is called fornication and sin. Hebrews 13.4, marriage is honorable and all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers. God will judge. When you start violating those fundamental principles, then you have to find a way to deal with the consequences. And for many, abortion is just that. Abortion is man's carnal attempt to make his sin go away. But there are consequences to compounding the first sin with an abortion. You may have made the inconvenience go away, but you brought on a whole new set of issues. Many women who've had abortions suffer from 
post-abortion syndrome. Remember how Rizpah's sons were killed. And everyone left the scene, except mom, who stayed with the bodies. It's really the same story with abortion. Everyone encourages the mom to get an abortion. The boyfriend, who, who wants to make it all go away. All of her party friends, and maybe even her parents, who don't want their reputation tarnished and who want to see their own dreams fulfilled vicariously through the life of their daughter. And all the people at the abortion clinic, they were all there till it was over. Then only mom is left. Mom is left with the haunting memories, the night terrors, the remorse, and all the what-ifs. Mom is the one left to battle the fowls of the air and the beasts of the field. A voice heard in Rama, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted because they are not. Frederica Matthews Green said, Now hear me. A woman doesn't want an abortion like she wants an ice cream cone or a Porsche, but like an animal caught in a trap who gnaws off its own leg. It speaks of a, of a desperation, a traumatic desperation. It happens when the alternatives seem too awful to consider. But abortion produces its own special brand of agony. Though the physical pain subsides, the emotional pain lingers like the phantom pain of an amputated limb. Tracking the experiences of those who have had abortions is difficult. Many will not share their experience because of privacy concerns or the shame. And tragically, many are left to deal with it on their own. Post-abortion syndrome manifests itself in a host of seemingly unrelated ways. Guilt, anxiety, psychological numbing, depression, and suicidal thoughts, anniversary syndrome uh, when the birthday rolls around, uh, flashbacks, reliving the abortion, Increased alcohol and drug use are common. Eating disorders can develop. Survivor's guilt. Why did I survive when I made this horrible choice? Self-punishing behavior like cutting or an attraction to abusive relationships. Relationship issues of all kinds. And in some cases, there's a preoccupation with getting pregnant again. And there are a host of others. It may be legal, but that doesn't make it right. Legalized abortion is a blight on our society. And it's an arrow in the heart of many women. But there is hope. David saw Rizpah's plight and he came to her rescue. David is a picture of Jesus coming to bring hope and life to you. David validated Rizpah's loss. He ministered to her pain, and he helped bring closure to her situation. He gave her boys a proper burial, and he helped Rizpah move on with her life. There are people who can do that for you. 
No one can undo what's happened. But sins can be forgiven. Injuries heal. Open wounds mend. Step one, and this applies to a number of areas of our lives. Step one is realizing that evil thrives in darkness. But it loses its power over you when you bring it into the light. For nothing is secret that shall not be made manifest, neither anything hid that shall not be made known. There is recovery from abortion. There is hope and peace after abortion. It starts by, number one, recognizing that you're not alone. And peace is possible. Number two, recognize that tears are part of the process of healing. Number three, find your local, and I, and I emphasize the word local, abortion recovery ministry. Get help. We have a table set up in our foyer this morning. Someone that's willing to talk to you there. There's a, a flyer in the program that gives you the information. Don't leave today without having taken a step toward healing. Number four, find your way to spiritual healing. Accept God's forgiveness. And then choose to forgive yourself. Psalm 30, verse 5 says, Weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Sometimes we just want to pretend that things never happened. There's traumas in our life, maybe things from our formative years. And we, we like to pretend that if we, if we never think about it, it'll all be okay. Well, I, I promise you this. It's manifesting itself somehow. A lot of times it comes out sideways. But it's manifesting itself somehow. And the best thing that you can do is to deal with it straight on. And there's people that are willing, their life's calling is to help you do that. You don't have to carry your secret to the grave. You can be made whole in the here and now. The burden can be lifted. I encourage you to talk at the table, get the information, make the phone call. But don't leave here today without having taken a step towards healing. And there's others that are here today and maybe they didn't have an abortion. But there's other things that either happened to us or choices that we made in life. And, and it, sometimes it just feels hopeless. There's nothing I can do. It, on some level, that may be true. You can't undo what's been done. But that doesn't mean you can't heal. And the interesting thing about a wound is that if you debreed it, 
and you deal with all the poisons and the infection and it heals while it still leaves a scar it doesn't have to hurt anymore and I believe that's what the Lord Jesus Christ would offer you today let me help you heal in a healthy way whatever it might be Lord we make decisions and we kind of hope from that moment on that it all goes away we're fearful of the consequences of of where we were and so we make a decision that that will undo the consequences we didn't foresee the way it would leave us Lord I believe the enemy revels in that he revels in guilt and shame and darkness and hopelessness and pain and then we read the Bible or we go to church and we hear about a Savior who came to offer hope. And we, we didn't have to be perfect to experience it. We just had to come to Him and surrender. We just had to let go of all the things we were holding so tightly to. And He could bring healing and wholeness and health and peace. All the things that we're so desperate for. So Lord, for the one that's here today, and my hunch is it's more than one. Perhaps the many that are here today that have made a decision to abort their child. I'm so thankful, God, that you never turned your back on them. You're still in the process of reaching out to them in love. Your desire is not vengeance. Your desire is wholeness, healing, health, forgiveness, peace. If we will just reach out to you. For others of us, there's other issues in our life that we just kind of hoped if we didn't think about it, it would go away. But you've called us to bring it into the light. There's nothing hidden that shall not be revealed. How much better if we do it in this life? How much better if we do it here and find restoration and forgiveness? For the one that's here this morning that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, my heart's desire is that prayer, their prayer would be, Jesus, I've never accepted you as my Lord and Savior. I've never made you Lord of my life. And today I confess my sins. I've fallen short on a, on a thousand fronts. I've missed the mark. I've gone my own way. I've made my own choices. I've chosen sin instead of your will and your way. Today I want to confess all of that, give it all to you, that I might be saved, that I might be 
born again, that you might begin the process of transforming me, that old things might be passed away and all things might become new. Lord, I pray that hope would be imparted to this congregation today, that they would receive it by faith. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name.